May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So one of the benefits of the traditional liturgical Christianity is that we have the church year. Um, And that's really east or west, everybody has the church year in this older traditions. And uh, you may recall, um, in our calendar, we spend about half of the year from Advent through Pentecost um, going through the life of Jesus. And then the second half of the year, we kind of focus more on growing in the faith, um, a little bit less tied to specific things in the calendar itself. And on top of this, we have the various observances of feasts and fasts, commemorations and saints days that are scattered throughout the year to help us follow and learn from the heroes of our faith. These facets of the church year are very helpful in forming us as Christians in terms of our way of thinking, giving us a Christian worldview and uh, things like that. Jonathan Pajot of the Symbolic World podcast rightly calls the church year our epic story as Christians. During our current season of Trinity Tide, though, um, it can be easy to lose this sense of our epic story because it's the year devoted to our uh, growing in the faith, and so the story itself is a lot less evident. This season is also very long. It can last up to about 26 weeks, um, and so it's easy to lose that sense of story. But I recently learned a couple of facts uh, over, the, over the past week or so that can help us organize how we approach Trinity Tide and fit it into that story. So while reading Massey Shepherd's mid-century commentary on our prayer book, I discovered that with one seasonal ex- exception, all of the epistles in Trinity Tide starting this week, they're going to follow St. Paul's books in canonical order. So while the Trinity Tide readings are not systematic, our epistles do give us this overview of the Pauline letters in the order in which we encounter them in our Bibles. That's, of course, a very good tool for our season of discipleship and growth because St. Paul's writings are arguably the most obvious texts for teaching practical doctrine in Scripture. And if we can just get them in order, that's a, that's a really helpful tool this time of year. I also discovered that there are these little mini-themes scattered throughout the Trinity Tide season. Um, Dr. Melville Scott, who's an Anglican priest and theologian from the turn of the last century, he notes that the first five weeks of Trinity Tide have a theme of love. And then the next five weeks, starting with this one, are going to build on that love but point us to our Christian duty. Yet in laying this foundation for our Christian duty, St. Paul does take us back to the grace of our baptism. Um, Our epistle, page 197, Romans 6, beginning at verse 3. Page 197, Romans 6, beginning at verse 3. St. Paul writes, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So St. Paul says that we are baptized into Christ. That is language that uh, speaks to our union with Christ. Since we belong to Jesus, he gives us what is his. We share in his eternal life just as we share in his salvific death. In our Lord's resurrection, we have new life. And so St. Paul says, if we have been raised with him, 
We have a duty to walk in new life, in newness to life. And it's important to point out that the grace given in our baptism is indeed a free gift. It's something that God does, not something that we do for God. The new life we have in Christ, our spiritual regeneration, it's among such good things as past man's understanding that had been prepared for us by God, to use the language in our collect. Yet to properly receive this gift of newness of life, we have to receive it rightly. We have to receive it the way that we're supposed to. Dr. Scott puts it this way. Strictly speaking, baptism has no conditions, but is an act of free grace, which, however, we must learn not to receive in vain. Defective teaching as to the reality of our baptismal grace is the too frequent cause of neglect of our baptismal duty. We cannot teach too clearly that we are united to Christ in baptism and are responsible for the use made of so high a grace. So that is, we're not supposed to treat our baptism as a talisman, as a good luck charm, any more than we're to treat it as our own good work. It's neither of those things. Rather, our catechism tells us that in order to properly receive the benefits God gives us in our baptism, we need to have repentance and faith. Now, in the Hebrew idiom of the Old Testament, repentance has a connotation of turning around. You were going towards sin the world, the flesh, and the devil, but you've turned instead to go towards God. In the Greek of the New Testament, repentance has a connotation of changing your mind. You thought and believed in the wrong things. You had your trust, your faith in the wrong things, but you've changed your mind, and instead you're believing in and trusting in God. Now, we can often see that trust is a synonym for faith. That's when we talk about faith, think about it in terms of trust, trusting in God. So we see here then that faith and repentance are really two sides of the same coin. In order to put your trust in God, you must change your mind and turn from your sins. You must turn around from your sins and turn towards God. St. Paul further explains this in our text. This is verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. St. John Chrysostom points out that uh, St. Paul here is speaking of two deaths, two mortifyings in this passage. One... St. Chrysostom writes, is done by Christ in baptism, and the other it is our duty to effect by earnestness afterwards. So one of these significant images we have of baptism is that of dying and being buried. Um, This is especially evident when uh, baptism is done by immersion. Our uh, baptismal font's a bit too small for that. Unless you're very, very tiny, um, being immersed is not going to (laughs) happen. But, um, but that is something that, we've, that, that the church has done throughout history. That's not just, uh, just purview of, of, of the Baptists. Um, they, they insist upon it, but um, it is, it is um, something that is done throughout the church. And what we see is that the baptized person is put under the water and then brought out of it again, which symbolizes dying, being buried, and then rising again. Just as Jesus died for us on the cross, So our old man, our old sinful self, 
is crucified with Jesus. We are then buried and raised with him in baptism. As St. Paul notes, a dead man no longer sins. After all, since he's dead, he can't do bad things anymore, right? Indeed, as St. Paul writes, he that is dead is freed from sin. This idea of being freed from sin reminds us of another of St. Paul's images that are tied to baptism, that of the Exodus in the Red Sea. So just as the Israelites were freed from bondage to Pharaoh through waters in the Red sea, of the Red Sea, so we're then freed from bondage to sin in the waters of baptism. Yet, when he's talking about this in 1 Corinthians 10, St. Paul points out that the Israelites did not live up to their freedom. The Israelites did not inherit the promised land. They continued to sin. In fact, everybody of that first generation, the people that came out of Exodus, failed to receive their inheritance except for two guys. And Moses was not one of those two guys. The Israelites spurned God's gift of freedom and several times they even wished they were back in Egypt. Sure, they were slaves, but at least they were comfortable slaves. I mean, that was kind of what they're saying, right? St. Paul tells us that the Israelite story here is supposed to be a warning for us. That's why, by the way, Psalm 95 in its entirety was the, was the traditional uh, uh, inviatory canticle in morning prayer. We're supposed to be reminded of that every day. Our American tradition softened it a little bit, but uh, you can put in Psalm 95 instead if you want. It's all good. St. John Chrysostom writes this. He says, For that our former sins were buried came of Jesus' gift, but the remaining dead to sin after baptism must be the work of our own earnestness, however much we find God here also giving us large help. For this is not the only thing baptism has the power to do to obliterate our former transgressions, for it also secures against subsequent ones. So when we're united to Christ by faith and repentance in the sacraments of baptism, we are changed. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. If you've been following along with our Sunday, adult Sunday school class, you may recall that the big problem in the Old Covenant is that the change is merely external. It doesn't change. There's no internal change. The hearts of the Israelites did not change. As a whole, they were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some individuals here and there that were, so it's not, it's not everybody in the Old Covenant is in this state. But, but, but for the most part, this is the way it was with the Israelites. This indwelling with the Holy Spirit is what changes us. It's this indwelling that enables us to live in righteousness rather than in sin. It's this indwelling that enables us to do our Christian duty. It's this indwelling that makes our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, as our Lord said in the Gospel reading. So let's conclude our epistle, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
You may recall that these were some of the verses that we, uh, we, we sing during Eastertide. Christ's death on the cross is a once-for-all-time event. As our communion liturgy notes, it was his one oblation of himself once offered as a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. His sacrificial death upon the cross was eternally efficacious for all people and all time. Death hath no more dominion over him. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. And in his resurrection, he eternally lives to God. In fact, as God incarnate, he brings his resurrected humanity into heaven itself, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He unites Therefore, our humanity to God's divinity. One of us is on the throne. So since we're united to Christ, we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. When we forsake sin, when we repent, when we take up our cross to follow the Lord, when we perform our Christian duty, we are living in light of being alive to God. Now, some of you all here are going to be confirmed in about two months. In about two months, uh, one of our bishops will lay his hand on you. He will bless you. He will pray for the strengthening of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as you then uh, reaffirm your baptismal vows. Now, many of the rest of you have already been been confirmed, and some of y'all, it's been many decades since you've been confirmed. Uh, The rest of of y'all, Lord willing, will receive this blessing in the coming, coming years. And I bring all this up because our catechism tells us that confirmation is a gift from the church to help you fulfill your bounden duty before God. To do the things that St. Paul tells us is why the church gives us confirmation. So learning our Christian duty, this is an essential part of the Trinity Tide season of discipleship and spiritual growth. Um, What is that duty? Well, we find it in the Holy Scriptures, obeying what God has told us to do, always coming from that position of grace. We obey because of what he's done for us, right? And this begins with repenting of our sins and following Christ to walk in newness of life. Our Christian duty does not earn God's grace. We've already received that grace as evidence in our baptisms. But living up to our Christian duty, that indeed is an appropriate response of love to the love that God has given us. Remember our collect. We prayed, O God, who has prepared for those who love thee such good things as past man's understanding, pour into our hearts such love toward thee, that we, loving thee above all things, may obtain thy promises, which exceed all that we can desire through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So God pours his love into our hearts so that we can then love him in turn. His promises are better than all that the world, the flesh, or the devil can offer. The onions and leeks of Egypt come with with chains of slavery. So let's walk in the freedom he has given us, freedom from sin, never looking back, but always keeping our eyes on the Lord, trusting in him, for he is the trustworthy one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.